Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we remembered this morning, Lord, in your Son, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Those promises uh, echo from Old Testament to New, Lord, and we are looking forward to uh, the final fulfillments and the eternal fulfillments that are yet to come, Lord. Uh, we thank you for uh, the church which you have given and which you are coming home to claim very soon, Lord. Uh, we pray that you bless this time as we learn more about the early church this morning, uh, that we would be encouraged, built up, that you would grant Tom the words uh, to say and to share, Lord, and that we would uh, all grow in maturity through this time. In your name we pray, amen. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there, named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So... Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Forgive the technical difficulties this morning. Sometimes things don't go exactly the way you plan them. Um, I, have a, I want to start with a, a finish, this, finish the sentence question for you. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> Proverbs 16.9 Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Jeremiah 10 verse 23 makes the same point a little more forcefully. It says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. That isn't a declaration of how things ought to happen. It's a declaration of how things do happen. We do not determine the course of our own lives. God does. And considering what God's Word tells us about the wretchedness of our own hearts and our own motives and what His Word and His works 
reveal about the perfection of his character and his ways, this simple truth should be cause for great thanksgiving on our part. We do not determine the course of our own lives. God does. In this morning's passage, Paul and Barnabas and their fellow workers for the gospel get to see that same wonderful truth put very clearly on display. Paul and Barnabas recently returned to their base of operations in Syrian Antioch after having been in Jerusalem. And, of course, the reason that they were in Jerusalem was for one of the most important meetings ever to take place on earth, a meeting that we know as the Jerusalem Council. That gathering of apostles and elders in Jerusalem uh, had been brought together to resolve a very heated dispute in the first generation of the church about whether Christians who were Gentiles had to be circumcised and had to keep the law of Moses in order to truly be Christians, in order to truly be saved. And God's uncompromising answer to that question was no. In a marvelous display of God-sourced unity, all of the leaders from the mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem and the mostly Gentile church in Antioch, when they came together in Jerusalem, agreed unanimously that it is not any form of law-keeping that saves us. To put it in, in the words that Peter used that he spoke before that council in Acts 15.11, we, Jews, are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as those Gentiles are. And there you have it. Whether Jew or Gentile, we are all sinners. We all deserve only God's eternal condemnation. Law-keeping cannot fix that problem. It cannot fix our estrangement from God. The only way that any sinner is saved from God's condemning judgment is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. His life laid down in our place at the cross is the only sufficient payment for our infinite sin debt to God. And his perfect righteousness credited to our account is the only qualification that any, any human being will ever have to stand in the presence of our perfectly holy God and to dwell with him forever. Now that same spirit-directed gathering of early church leaders in Jerusalem also arrived at a very brief and very straightforward set of three essential instructions to Gentile believers in all places. First, abstain from eating animals sacrificed to idols. Secondly, abstain from consuming the blood of an animal and thus of eating an animal that died by strangulation. And finally, abstain from any form of sexual immorality. All three of those practices were exceedingly common among unsaved Gentiles throughout the pagan uh, idol-worshiping cultures of the Roman Empire. And these prohibitions were not, they were not about how Gentiles are saved. They were about how saved Gentiles behave so that the unity and the purity of Christ's church is, is guarded 
and, and uh, is nurtured. When Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch then with two other faithful men from the Jerusalem church, and they shared with the, the, that church in Antioch the conclusions to which the Holy Spirit had unanimously brought that group of church leaders, there was great rejoicing in that city, in Antioch. Luke now picks up the narrative at that point in chapter 15, verse 36. He says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word. Now those cities were in the island of Cyprus and up here in the southern part of Asia Minor. Those were the cities where, they had, where God had used Paul and Barnabas to plant churches on the first missionary journey. And that was the plan for the second missionary journey. Paul lays it out right there. Let's go back. Let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word. And let's see how they're doing. Let's strengthen them. But Paul and Barnabas were about to discover that God had a somewhat different plan. In the few remaining verses of chapter 15, God tells us about a conflict uh, that arises between Paul and Barnabas just as they are setting out on this second missionary journey. And that conflict is over a young man named John Mark. At the end of chapter 11, Barnabas and Paul, who was then called Saul, had been sent from Antioch to Jerusalem with a gift of money from the mostly Gentile Christians in Antioch to the mostly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and Judea. In the last verse of chapter 12, we learn that when Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem to Antioch after completing that mission of mercy, taking money to the saints in Jerusalem, they were accompanied by a young Jewish convert from Jerusalem named John, also called Mark. Colossians 4 verse 10 tells us that Mark was Barnabas's cousin. In chapter 13, when Barnabas and Saul had been sent by the Holy Spirit on their first missionary journey, they had taken Mark with them. And he remained with them. He remained with them through the, the early part of that journey as they went from east to west across the island of, of Cyprus. And, and ministered the gospel, spoke the gospel in every city. But when they came up here to southern Asia Minor in this region called Pamphylia, Mark, quote, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, as Paul and Barnabas prepare to set out for the second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take Mark with them as they had the first time. But, but Paul firmly insists that they should not take him along who, quote, deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul considers Mark's departure from that missionary team on the first round to be desertion. And Luke tells us in verse 39 that a sharp disagreement arises at this point between Paul and Barnabas over whether or not they should take Mark with them on this journey. The word that's translated sharp disagreement here is a, it is a forceful word. It shouldn't be taken lightly. It's the Greek word from which we get an English word many people aren't very familiar with, but it's paroxysm. And it means a sudden, intense, 
or even violent emotional response. This was a very heated disagreement between these two godly men who had worked together marvelously for more than a decade. From this point forward, Paul and Barnabas no longer travel together. One missionary team has now become two missionary teams. And this, by the way, is the last mention of either Barnabas or Mark in the book of Acts. But God definitely was not finished with either of those men. Now, I'll have more to say uh, in just a bit about what the rest of the Bible tells us about Mark. But I want to point out here that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Paul speaks of Barnabas as a fellow full-time worker for the gospel. Uh, and, and Paul had not even been to Corinth yet. So that, when he writes that letter, it's considerably later than the events that we see here. And that tells me that, that neither Paul's relationship with Barnabas nor the overlap of their two ministries permanently ended as a result of this conflict. And that's really important. Our God is a God of renewal. He's a God of reconciliation. And we see him working reconciliation out of conflict over and over and over in all of the scriptures and in in our lives. All right, so which man was right when it came to taking or not taking Mark on this second journey? Well, I strongly agree with Bob Deffenbaugh and what he said in our sermon discussion earlier this week, that they were both right, but in different ways. If we go back to the time right after Jesus laid hold of Paul, the resurrected Jesus laid hold of Paul in Acts chapter 9, Barnabas came alongside Paul at a critical time, and he was powerfully used by God to prepare Paul for the work to which God had called him, to which the resurrected Jesus had directly called Paul. And considering how things had gone with Paul's early evangelistic efforts in Damascus and then in Jerusalem, I'd have to say that, uh, that at that stage of his life, uh, there were some rough edges about Paul that needed to be kind of sanded down. And there was nobody better suited to be used by God to do that sanding than Barnabas, whose, whose name means son of encouragement. Now, Paul continued to mature as a redeemed uh, child of God under Barnabas' mentorship for more than a decade. So this was not a short assignment for Barnabas. Um, And and so it was more than a decade before the work began to which Jesus had directly called Paul to go throughout the Roman Empire to Gentiles and to Jews to, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. The impact of God's work through Barnabas in this world has been immeasurable, but it has not, for the most part, been direct. Okay? Uh, it was through two men that Barnabas faithfully discipled at just the right time by the perfect orchestration of God that Barnabas impacted the world. One of those men was Paul, and the other was Mark. For the same reasons that Barnabas was the right man to disciple and to mold the apostle Paul, he was also far better suited than Paul to help Mark 
work through his early reluctance to jump into Paul's mode of bleeding-edge evangelism and church planting. We're prone to think that everybody should be like us, right? And that seems especially true of the, of the most intense and tireless workers among us. But beloved, God has no intention of filling his church with people exactly like you or exactly like me. And we should be very thankful to God for that reality. The things that make us different from one another when it comes to spiritual gifting, personal experiences, even personal temperament are used by God very intentionally and very strategically to accomplish through each of us exactly what he intends to accomplish for the advancement of the gospel and for the building up of his church. As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, it is by the faithful working of each individual member of the body of Christ that we all grow up as one new man into our head, who is Christ. And it's, it's not just the good stuff in us that God uses. He uses even our personal sins and struggles to accomplish his will through us. God is not limited in any way by our individual skills or talents or even our failures. Uh, he uses those things that are distinctive about each of us to accomplish what he intends to in and through his church. Psalm 103 says, he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. And yet that same psalm promises that he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He has showered his grace and his kindness and his love upon us in Christ. That's, that's what that psalm is pointing to. God knows his instruments, beloved, and that applies to you every bit as much as it did to Paul and Barnabas and Mark. There's another facet of this that we shouldn't miss. I've met, I've met way too many Christians who seem convinced that God cannot use them because they're too messed up now or they have done something so messy in the past that they are just shut down from usefulness. They are benched. Now, it is surely true that a failure to repent of a persistent sin can put you on the bench in terms of usefulness to God until you do repent and you act on the power over sin that belongs to you as a redeemed child of God. Do you guys know that you have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin? Absolutely freed. Sin has no control over you. So many Christians live as if they are controlled by their sin. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And, it's, and Satan loves that lie because it cripples Christians. But it's not true. We're liberated from the power of sin. It's also true that certain sins may disqualify you from certain specific roles and ministries in God's household. But beloved, there are many, many roles and ministries that the church has, has to do in this world and that we as believers have set before us to build up the church. No sin that you have confessed and turned away from can keep you from usefulness to God now or from now on. 
This passage is the last mention of Mark in the book of Acts, and it's not an honorable mention. But God was not even remotely finished using Mark at this point. The next time in the New Testament that we find Mark mentioned is in Colossians chapter 4 and Philemon, which is just one chapter. Paul wrote those epistles many years after this, near the end of his life, while he was under long-term house imprisonment in the city of Rome. By that time, Mark had become a vital part of Paul's small and highly trusted circle of faithful co-workers for the gospel of Christ. Mark lovingly attended to Paul and Aristarchus during their long imprisonment in Rome, and another of the faithful brothers who were in that same inner circle with Mark was Luke, the physician, the man who wrote the book that we're presently studying. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. In fact, through Luke, God wrote more of the New Testament than through any other individual. Two of the four Gospel accounts in the Bible were written by those two men, Mark and Luke. Peter also mentions Mark as his own spiritual son in his concluding greetings at the end of 1 Peter. Now, there's another important lesson for us in this transformation of Mark from deserter to valued co-worker and gospel writer. Genuine, godly courage is not genetic. It's learned. And the way it's learned is by those who behold the faithfulness of God over and over And that beholding usually happens in the context of painful testing. It doesn't happen when things are easy. The Bible presents many examples of that process by which God builds courage in the hearts of his children, uh, in the lives of men like Moses, Joshua, Gideon, dozens of others. Courage does not happen when things are easy. And nobody is better at orchestrating the tests and the proofs of God's faithfulness that create real and enduring courage than the Creator. Mark became a man of uh, of great courage, of enduring faithfulness, of mighty usefulness as a soldier in Christ's army because God knows his instruments. This is further proof that when we're making plans, including plans that involve other people, we should always use a pencil. One more quick note here about how God uses conflict in the body of Christ. In the first part of chapter 15, we saw this a very serious conflict arise in the church that looked like it had the capacity to tear the, the newborn church apart. God didn't merely resolve that conflict He used that conflict to build and strengthen Christ's church in ways that only conflict can accomplish. We talked about this last time, but this is so very important for us to understand. I talked to a few people since last week uh, who who commented on, on how hard it is to embrace that reality. God uses conflict to accomplish eternally valuable things. We don't have to fear conflict. 
when the only one worthy of our fear is God. God used conflict to build and strengthen Christ's church through that, that whole controversy about whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised and to obey the law. And the same is true of this conflict between Paul and Barnabas regarding Mark. There is no chance that God's agenda was going to be missed or sidelined by this serious, heated disagreement, or even by the separation that happened between Paul and Barnabas because of it. Instead, everything about this strong disagreement between these two godly men was used by God to advance his kingdom on earth, God's way, not man's. Now again, this is a very different lens than the one through which most of us view the events of our lives. But this is the accurate lens. Uh, this is the one that gives us a true and a clear view of what's actually going on. It fixes our nearsightedness and it shows us the reality of how God actually works in his church, even in and through the most personally painful experiences of our lives. God is so God's sovereignty over our lives is absolute all the time, and, and as we talked about last time, God is good all the time. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, Paul and Barnabas have divided into two teams. Barnabas and Mark returned to Cyprus where they, they visit the churches and encourage the churches. Paul goes back to Asia Minor and he returns to the churches that were planted during the first missionary journey. Another man named Silas is with him. And when he reaches Lystra and Derby in this region of Lyconia, he meets a young disciple of Jesus named Timothy. Timothy's father is a Gentile and his mother is a converted Jew. And we learn from Paul's letters to Timothy, uh, in fact, we were reading that passage this morning in the worship, that Timothy's mother and grandmother were godly women who imparted to Timothy as a child, from the time he was a child, a, a very uh, deep knowledge, extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. And that's that is really the, the primary thing that made Timothy so attractive to the Apostle Paul. By this point in his life, Timothy's reputation among the saints in that region of Asia Minor was already excellent. And the friendship and the love and the trust that God created between these two men, Paul and Timothy, would become very, very strong. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul will later speak of Timothy as his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Here in Acts 16, Paul calls young Timothy to join him and Silas as they continue in this second missionary journey. And then Paul circumcises Timothy, quote, because of the Jews who were in those parts. Now, it was already firmly established at the Jerusalem Council that, that we read about in chapter 15 that circumcision is not required for salvation nor is any other work that a person might do. Salvation is by grace only, not by grace plus. But Paul circumcises this young, half-Jewish, half-Gentile man for one very simple and straightforward reason, so that there will be no cause for needless offense to the Jews that are going to be in every major city that they encounter as they go 
through this journey and through the next, the next missionary journey. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 24, Paul really explains the reasoning behind all of this far better than I ever could. So let me just read those verses. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made, <clears throat> made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, in other words, Gentiles, I became as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all means I may save some. And of course, he's an instrument in that salvation, not the cause. And he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And he's saying, so that I can share in the blessings of the gospel together with all of those who believe. In verses 4 and 5 of Acts 16, we find that Paul's plan to return to the churches planted on his first missionary journey and to strengthen those churches coincided with God's plan for a while. Luke tells us that Paul and his team delivered to every church that they visited on this second journey the, the, the instructions to Gentile believers that had been decided on by the Jerusalem Council. Those instructions were not just for one group of Christians in one place at one time. They were for all Christians in all places at all times. Building up Christ's church will always include holding believers accountable to that which God's word requires of us. And that standard is very, very high because following Christ means being like Christ. As Paul and Silas and Timothy then continue from church to church, verse 5 tells us that the churches were being strengthened in the faith and they were increasing in number daily. And that, that got my attention this week. I've, uh, I've heard it said a lot in our circles, and I've said it quite a few times myself, that the success of any local church or ministry is not measured by headcount, but by faithfulness. And I still agree with that statement. But God has certainly not called us to remain static in the number of people who are part of the body of Christ or of this particular body of Christ. As Bill Bright, the founder of Crew, used to say back when I was young and it was called Campus Crusade, he said, evangelism is both the input and the output of disciple making. Following Christ means seeking and saving the lost, just as Christ did when he was here. So we're called to nurture and to strengthen the spiritual household of God. And one of the most indispensable ways that we do that is through a relentless devotion to seeking and saving the lost, both corporately and individually. After Paul and Silas and Timothy had visited and built up each of the churches in Asia Minor that had been planted during Paul's first missionary journey, 
They then set out westward through the rest of Asia Minor. And this, my subtitle for this part in verses 6 through 10 is God closes doors to open new ones. Uh, Paul, after they, after they left this, this region, south-central Asia, they intended then to, to go from east to west and to keep doing what they had been doing, which it means to stop in every city along the way and to go first to the synagogues and preach the gospel to the Jews and then to go out into the city and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That was, the, that was what they expected but that wasn't God's plan at this point. It says in verse 6 that they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word further in Asia. Wow. Can you imagine God saying, don't preach the gospel here? Paul no doubt expected that, again, that, they, that things were going to continue as they had throughout that first journey and so far on this one, but but the Holy Spirit changes their plans at this point. And for the rest of their time in Asia Minor, all they did was march steadily westward until they reached the, the far northwestern coast of Asia Minor at Troas. So they could, so we're going to see, so they could come over to Macedonia. As they approach the western coast of Asia Minor, as they get up in this region of Mysia, they they decided okay we're just going to make we're going to have a little exception to this to this uh, not speaking rule and we're going to we're going to go up here to Bithynia and then we'll come back and keep keep going the direction that God was sending us but it says in verse seven the spirit of Jesus does not permit them to do that again God is saying don't preach the gospel there yet yet. And before we talk about the reason that God allowed no exceptions to this decree to, to them to stop, to, to not speak the word of the, of the gospel any further in Asia, I want to touch on what's meant by the spirit of Jesus in verse 7. Some people get confused by this. Luke is not referring here to a different person of the Trinity than the one who just one verse earlier directed these same men not to proclaim the gospel as they traveled through the rest of Asia Minor. The divine person, who is variously referred to as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit, is the same person every time. The third person of the Trinity. The unity of nature, of mind, of will, and of activity that binds the three persons of the triune God together is so absolute, that unity is so complete, so perfect, so pervasive that it is impossible to speak of the activity of one of the three persons without speaking of the activity of the other two. And that's why we see this overlap. The three are truly one in the most complete and perfect sense. In fact, in a sense that is more all-encompassing and perfect than we can even comprehend. One of the reasons that that is very important for us to acknowledge is, is that it, t it impacts what God tells us about our unity in Christ. The New Testament everywhere declares that all who trust in Jesus have been made one with Christ and one with each other 
in Christ, just as the Son is one with the Father. Read John 17. Our unity, God declares that our unity together with one another in Christ is of the same kind as the unity of the Son with the Father. Now that's mind-blowing. Now we may, we may often fail to demonstrate that perfect oneness with one another as we should, but it is nonetheless absolutely true. It's not something that God will cause to happen. It's something that God already caused to happen. Ephesians 2 says we are already one. And our assignment thus is not to create that unity. God already did that. Our assignment is to guard and to nurture and to celebrate that unity with one another in Christ every day of our lives together here on earth, knowing that we're going to get to enjoy that oneness unhindered in the kingdom of God forever and ever. What God has joined together, let no man separate. That applies to the church as it does to marriage, to the, to the bride of Christ. After receiving this clear instruction from the Holy Spirit not to stop along the way as they move from east to west, Paul and his co-workers now continue westward, and I should go like this, right? Making a beeline to the port city of Troas on the far west coast of Asia Minor. And it's there in Troas that the Holy Spirit finally reveals his plan for the next phase of their journey. The Holy Spirit gives Paul a vision in the night. He sees a man from Macedonia, and that, oops, that's up over here. He sees a man from Macedonia who's calling out to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10, Luke says, when, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, it's interesting that from this point forward, as Luke narrates the progress of Paul's missionary journey, he keeps saying we and us. He wasn't saying that before. So I, I believe, I suspect, that Luke joined this ministry. I know that Luke was part of this work uh, of this, in the second missionary journey. I think this is where he joined them at Troas. And because from then on, it's we and us. It's not, they, it's not they and them. Luke would continue to be a courageous, faithful, highly valued co-worker with Paul until the very end of Paul's ministry. In Luke's gospel and in this book of Acts, again, God would write more of the New Testament than through any other individual. As Paul and his co-workers continued to follow the Holy Spirit's lead, they, they are going to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ next into the cities of Macedonia, including cities we know uh, from the Bible like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then they're going to head south into what we now know as Greece, into very important cities like Athens and Corinth and Sincrea. At every point, the one calling the shots will be the Holy Spirit the one who directs the steps of every person, is God. He tells us what we need to know as we take each step, but he often doesn't tell us any more than that. And that's why we need to make our plans in pencil 
even the Apostle Paul didn't get to know the whole plan in advance. That should tell us something. God may, God may block our way. He may close the door that we're trying to open. He may withhold from us provision that we expect him to give as we try to go about doing his work on earth. And when he does those things, we should not assume that we have somehow managed to put ourselves outside of his sovereignty and his control over, our, over the course of our lives because somehow we weren't listening hard enough. God might tell us where he's steering us or he might not tell us, but he will still be doing the steering. I've known Christians who seem to think that they're supposed to sit like a bump on a log until God tells them every single thing that they're supposed to do. That's not the assignment, guys. Again, Paul was more than once ended up being incorrect in his expectation about what God was going to do to him. Later on, he tells the Romans, I'll come to you on my way to Spain and it'll be maybe I'll, I'll see you for a while and then I'll continue. He never got to Spain. And when he came to Rome, it was in chains and he was there a lot longer than he intended to be. And then he had his head cut off. End of story. God might tell us where he's steering us or he might not, but he's always doing the steering. He might take a long time or a short time to make it clear what our next step should be, but he'll always tell, me, tell us what we need to know for each step. And, and I, I want to, in connection with all that, what I want to say is if you don't know what your next step is and with any specificity, just do the things that every Christian is commanded to do. Just be all about obeying and following Christ. God's not going to have any problem with making it, it moving you where he wants to move you. You're not that great. Now, this doesn't in any way mean that we aren't accountable to God for our decisions and actions. And it doesn't mean that we are incapable of violating his will. We're really good at violating his will. It simply means that we are not capable of keeping God from accomplishing what he intends to accomplish in us or through us. And that's wonderful. The church in Paul's day was much like the church in our day. It was made up of redeemed men and women who were still doing battle daily against the world, the flesh, and the devil and the habit of their old nature. It was through people very much like the people sitting in this room that God spread the gospel of Jesus Christ like wildfire throughout the whole Roman Empire in a single generation. Through failure and success, through conflict and reconciliation, those first saints found their sufficiency to accomplish eternally powerful things not in themselves, but in Christ alone. At every point in our lives as the children of God, we walk by faith and not by sight. We trust the one who's doing all the steering. We know, as Paul promises in Philippians 2.13, that at all times it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
The, the will part is harder for us than the work part. But God is doing both. And no matter what we encounter along the way, we know that it is well with our souls now and forever because of Christ, who is our life. Loving Father, thank you. Thank you for this, this amazing book of Acts and everything that we've already seen in it and will see. We thank you, Father, for the, the beautiful truth that, that our lives are in your hands entirely. And that, Father, that you do all things faithfully. You saved us for yourself. You will never abandon us or forsake us. You saved us in order that we might produce fruit and that that fruit might remain. And that's all you're doing. Father, Christ has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast only in the Lord. Christ is our all in all. Father, we look forward to everything that you have for each one of us for the remainder of our days on this earth. We want to be powerfully used by you, and we trust that you know how to make that happen. And we are, we are eternally grateful to be, to be part of that plan. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen.